Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. This is Global Reboot. Welcome to the show. No one wants to be a refugee. The world creates refugees. When you have a world with active conflicts, with a climate crisis, with a food crisis, with political crises, you get refugees. And there are some 108 million displaced people all over the world today, of whom about 35 million are refugees, struggling not just to build a home, but to get legal paperwork to exist. This is a big global problem. It doesn't get enough attention. It needs a reboot. There are many organizations that deal with this global crisis, and perhaps the most important of those is the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, or UNHCR. Well, my guest this week has the number two role at that organization. Kelly Clements is the UN's Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees. She's been at UNHCR since 2015, and she was previously in the U.S. government working as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State on this very issue. Global Reboot is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. This is episode five of season three, How to Reboot the World's Refugee Crisis. I spoke with Clements at a live event at the United Nations General Assembly in September. What follows is a recording of that interview. Let's dive in. The Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees at the UN, Kelly Clements. Let's welcome her on. Kelly Clements, welcome to Global Reboot. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So let's begin with the very obvious question: How do you define a refugee? So it has a very particular legal basis, but I'm going to tell you that refugees can be fleeing conflict, persecution, generalized violence, but they are people that leave their original countries. And we talk about forcibly displaced people who may be fleeing very similar reasons. But they don't leave their homes. I mean,、right. they don't leave their home countries, and in some contexts, I mean, Syria is an excellent example of that. Displaced people can be displaced once, twice, three times, and now you see the same thing in Ukraine. You've seen the same thing in Sudan, and so on. So, no one chooses to be a refugee. So, people will try every way possible to stay within their home country until really they don't have another option,、um, and so we see. Internally displaced first, and that's why the numbers are so much larger than refugees. Three times. Yes, and then of course, about three quarters of them will stay in neighboring countries around their home country. They don't go further、mm. afield. Well, I imagine many of them can't leave. I mean, it's it's not easy to cross no. borders. No, no, and and you know the refugees are they really are like like you and me. I mean, some have means. Some don't have means.、Mm. In contexts that we work in, often you see those that have means leaving first, and maybe they go further because they have the wherewithal to do that. As conflicts increase and lengthen and become protracted,、uh, that's when you see those that really truly have not been able to leave before coming out, and that has been the case, I think, in every refugee context that I've worked with. So sketch this out for us.、Um, where do we tend to find the most refugees globally? 
we find refugees in every part of the world, but the largest populations of refugees have tended to be, well, now, of course, the Ukraine situation, um, where you have between uh, five and six million people who are now mostly within Europe. Uh, the Syrian situation, where, again, you have about 6.8 million internally displaced, but another five to six million refugees, most, of course, in Turkey, in Iraq, in Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt. Um, the Myanmar situation, and a, a situation I know rather well, that was where I started my career three decades ago, um, three waves of Rohingya have left Myanmar over that period of time, 1978, 1992, and, and most recently in 2017. There are over a million now in Bangladesh. In the Horn of Africa, of course, now we see this tragedy unfolding in Sudan. Sudan was a host of refugees, uh, well over a million before the war began. And you had South Sudanese refugees actually returning precipitously to South Sudan when the war broke out. Uh, but now there are some four million internally displaced Sudanese, newly in the last five months, and a million refugees. Most have gone to Chad, but also to South Sudan, Central African Republic, Ethiopia, Uganda. Um, and then back to Asia, Afghanistan. And Afghanistan has been, this has been a, a, a country in conflict for four decades. And Pakistan and Iran have, of course, been generous hosts for those four decades. And they, between them, host between uh, six and seven million Afghans. Not all of them are registered refugees, but some are undocumented. And then inside the country, of course, you have three and a half million conflict displaced. And that's also a huge driver. So Turkey, for example, hosting both Syrians and Afghans and Iraqis in, in large numbers. So that's sort of a, a global snapshot. But give us a sense of, let's say there's a big earthquake in country X. And then a large part of the population finds that it has to leave. And let's say they need to migrate to another country, a neighboring country, and you see this large refugee population build up all of a sudden. What does UNHCR do? So we're an agency that focuses on those that are fleeing for the reasons that I mentioned at the beginning, the persecution conflict. But in some of these contexts in particular, let's take February, what happened in Turkey. I happened to be in Iraq when the earthquake hit. Mm. Um, I was going to Syria next. So ended up diverting, going to Aleppo, into that area where we already had a, a large relief operation that had been underway for 11 years. What we did during that circumstance is we would obviously support the internally displaced that were part of that relief program that we've had in place, protection, aid, uh, legal assistance, other ways that people can support themselves. And then we turned it into a very quick inject of you know, people were, the, the images of people standing and looking at buildings hmm. that actually you could not tell the difference of those buildings. Were they war damage or were they from the earthquake? But it was clear that it was, it was from the earthquake. They were basically looking at their, their dwellings and wondering, okay, we have no homes now. What are we going to do? So trying to find emergency shelters so people weren't sleeping in parks, trying to ensure that you had clean water, uh, and we worked through the partners that we had for the relief operation quite extensively, 
and we did similarly in, in Turkey uh, because, of course, there was a huge uh, refugee protection and aid program underway there with the government. And so we would convert a, in a situation like this, and when you have major earthquakes, if we're present, you know, it's, you don't worry about mandates. You don't worry about, well, that's your job, or should we be asked, or what have you. We offer. It's a whole of approach, whole of UN approach, and we do what we can to, to save lives and, and minimize suffering because it's just catastrophic. So, I mean, obviously that was a, an emergency example, but in general, um, globally, what are the biggest drivers of the creation of refugees? And I'm guessing that climate change has kind of steadily risen up that list of drivers. It is, it is. Uh, I think statistically, still conflict is the largest driver of displacement. But like you said, uh, climate, climate factors, climate change, natural disasters. Um, last year, there were 32 million people that somehow moved, were displaced because of climate factors. It's quickly rising. And I think we talk about, when we talk about drivers of displacement, we have, you know, there are four factors that we talk about. There, of course, conflict, climate, COVID, and right. the after, aftermath people in terms of not having a way to be able to survive where they were, um, and cost of living and inflation. And we saw the ripple effect with Ukraine and what that meant for food, food insecurity. And it's very hard to look at a population that's on the move and say, it's only for that reason. It's only because there's a war in their original village, or it's only because um, they may be a member of a particular ethnic group that is persecuted. Increasingly, it's an overlay of multiple factors. And I think Venezuela is a good example of that conversations with Venezuelans about why they have left the country. It's a very complicated Because it's a big factors. decision to make, yes. to leave home. Yes. And so you have mixed, you also have what we call mixed movements of people. People that may be going more for economic reasons, people that are going because they're trying to save their life, uh, because they're in harm's way, in danger. And you see this in the Sahel. You see this in the Horn of Africa. I was in July on the border with Ethiopia and Somalia. It's a place where we're providing um, some pretty innovative work for both Ethiopian farmers and Somali refugees, and they've been there for a couple of decades, working together to cultivate land and to provide food for communities. But now they have a quarter of a million drought victims that have come from Somalia or other parts of Ethiopia into the area to try to be assisted. So you have this very interesting mix of, of people on the move, but for different reasons. They're coming for water, they're coming for food, whereas those early Somali arrivals were coming because of war. So in your role, when you think about fixing this gigantic, global, decades-long, centuries-long, millennia-long problem, how much of your mind space is on the emergency triage and how much of it is in fixing the problem for the longer term? <laughs> oh, wouldn't we love it if those uh, member states up the road could make a little peace? Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that, that a refugee would rather do, do is to go home. Yeah. To go home to a community that's safe again, they can rebuild, you know, and uh, that I think is the preferred option always. 
But as I mentioned, the, when you don't have a political resolution, and you have people that have been in displacement or as, a, as refugees for years, going on generations. You know, some of those Afghans in Pakistan have been there for 40 years. Children born in Pakistan, they don't know Afghanistan. And so you have to, you really need to think differently about how you support a population. And so we've really done some creative work that needs to be redoubled going forward about how you don't look at uh, a response just with a humanitarian lens. You know, for UNHCR, we have primarily humanitarian funding coming our way, but increasingly some of the development banks, for example, uh, have invested in longer-term resilience, trying to find some solutions where if people can't go home, and for a very small percentage of the population are resettled, but for the most part, people are staying where they are. How do they support themselves? How do they then think differently about uh, their futures? You know, they want a job. They want to put their kids in school. They want, you know, adequate health care. They want clean water. I mean, these are very, these are basic Basic things. needs. Security, obviously, which is why they remain where they are in many cases is for that security. So we have partnered now, and this is where a lot of our work is generated. I don't want to um, minimize the emergency response because if I can just pause for a moment on that. The emergencies over the last couple of years, on average, we've responded to a new emergency every two weeks. Wow. And for that, there's a, you know, with a declaration and, and additional resources and people and partners and so on to go and support what is the first response? And those are communities. Those are local communities that we need to support. And this is in an increasing frequency than in years past? Huge. Huge increase. Because of climate change? Mm, and conflict. And conflict. And conflict. I would not say one over the yep. other. The, the conflict has been quite substantial. Right now we have 23 active emergency declarations, some massive, related to Sudan, for example, now, or Ukraine. Um, and Afghanistan for that matter, and then 20 or so that are on the horizon, they're on the precipice, that we're quite concerned about them. You know, you have Burkina Faso and Mali that are active emergencies in some places where access is almost impossible, but then you also have uh, fragility within those countries and neighboring countries where this kind of instability could spread. So the emergency response is significant. But we're increasingly trying to turn that emergency response into something that looks very different. I'll give you an example. With Sudan, and with this million refugees now leaving, new refugees, uh, Chad already had 400,000 refugees before the war broke out. They now have almost 600,000 new Sudanese refugees. And of course, you know, mostly there at the border areas, we're trying to figure out ways with the government and local authorities. How do we help them move them to locations that are safer and that where services can be provided? Trying to avoid camps. We really want alternatives to camps. And part of this uh, support is now coming from the international financial institutions. The World Bank, for example, already had uh, a huge partnership with the Chad government about reinforcing health and education services. So they've almost turned into an, an emergency development approach where rather than looking at a parallel system of humanitarian relief, 
you immediately pivot to thinking, what does this population need? What, what do they want that we can help to provide so they are less dependent on international aid? Like I said, jobs. Can you put kids in school almost immediately? You know, how do you provide that health care that they might need? Deeply traumatized individuals. All of that, let's not have the, the international community kind of, kind of fly in and provide, but use those local resources and build on government structures to be able to provide. This is what we're trying to do in, in many parts of the world now. Um, and if I could just pause for a moment on Ukraine, one of the, the systems that were put into place within days after the war breaking out by the European Union was a temporary protection that allowed people to work immediately, put their kids in school, and basically have a residency. And that gave them the tools to be able to support themselves. Uh, Colombia and Ecuador have done the same thing with Venezuelans, a residency permit so that they can work. And this is what we're trying to do then, trying to support the governments to support those structures as opposed to come in with a long-term relief operation that is neither effective nor efficient. So we've spent some time now discussing the scope and scale of the problem. And this is obviously a problem that will keep re-emerging. It's not a static issue. There will be more conflicts. There will be other reasons that will generate more refugees. But if we had to think about rebooting this issue, if you had to think about the things that we could reform or change to better address the global refugee crisis, what would you do? Well, you know, I was thinking, thinking about this because we had a conversation this morning with a number of member states and partner agencies about the growing humanitarian gap in terms of financing. Because while we have record need around the world, an enormous budget that is undersubscribed, we also in the last year have had a record amount of support for the organization and for the work not just we are doing but many partners are doing. But it's a, a narrow way to look at aid. It's a narrow way to look at support. It also is something where you need to take the decision-making that may take place not so close to the places we work, but right down to the local level, to have refugees displaced making their own decisions, designing their own programs, implementing their own programs. And so we're trying to shift very much the way that we deliver so it is a catchy term called localization. It's not UNHCR. It's the 1,100 partners we work with, of which 70 or 80% are actually national or local. And really trying to invest in refugee-led, women-led, community-based organizations as the primary deliverers of aid. So that's a shift, I think, that can only strengthen the response and can increase resilience in a community in including those displaced populations. But there have to be very flexible funding mechanisms to be able to support this. And this is something that, you know, from a humanitarian perspective, the public sector that we get most of our support from, although increasingly from the private sector, they are flexible, but the humanitarian way of, of approaching this can be sometimes rigid in terms of time frame. So going back to a different approach, this emergency development or looking at solutions, you know, we need the financing mechanisms in order to support that. And you saw that with the World Bank when IDA 18 and then IDA 19 and now talking about 20, 
the host and refugee subwindow, where you then had um, obviously uh, governments being able to ask for that kind of support through grant mechanisms for middle-income countries that were big refugee hosts, the global uh, concessional financing facility, and again, another way of reinforcing, not in a short-term way, but the systems and the sectors of the country to be able to reinforce that. So you, you can do what you see now in Uganda, very progressive refugee policies. Refugees can move, they can work, you have Ugandan students in refugee schools, and you have refugee students in Ugandan schools. But you don't invest in, in, in a parallel system. You really try to reinforce. Not every mechanism, not every funding um, instrument is, is designed in a way that's flexible enough for us to be able to do that. So increasingly, we have to look at this not as a humanitarian intervention or a development one, but something that's much more flexible keeping in mind that there's a very specific way that we need to be able to deliver aid in a humanitarian way that's apolitical, neutral, and so on. But the financing itself can be much more flexible than it is. Mm. I want to come back to that, but I also want to put a criticism to you. It is a criticism of the UNHCR and the UN system in general. And the criticism goes like this. You have a wide range of funders, um, but of those funders, there is a disproportionate amount of funding that comes from the United States. So I, I was looking at your website, and it showed that of the $3.4 billion that comes from a whole range of countries and some private donors, about $1.2 billion was coming from the United States. Uh, that's more than 33%. You looked at the top 10, and you've got most of the G7 in the top 10. And then the criticism then uh, is that these mostly rich, mostly Western countries, they often then say to UNHCR that why don't you focus on the areas that matter to us? So, for example, Europe or Ukraine or, in America's case, Central America or South America. So goes the criticism. And then a lot of the global south gets ignored, whether it's Africa, whether it's large parts of Asia. Do you think that that model is broken? The United States has been an incredibly generous donor to our agency. Let me say that right off the top. But and, and you, but of course, worked for the U.S. government, yes, but you're wearing your UNHCR hat. I am. Right. But we are overly dependent on them. And we've had these conversations. And I think, you know, in terms of the top four, five, six donors, they provide, of the public support we get, they provide between 70 and 80 percent. Wow. Which is enormous, which, of course, is not healthy. And we're not alone. This is, this is something that's shared with, with uh, my sister agencies. We need much more diversity of support. It's one of the reasons why we went to the private sector several years ago to really build up a strategy with several reasons. One, a clear financing gap, you know, in terms of the, the kind of support they can provide uh, that we can't find elsewhere. Second was the expertise and the innovation that they can help us drive. And I can give you some examples if we have time later uh, related to that. And the third is the advocacy. And especially as we see refugees increasingly part of that polarized debate and becoming the other, um, business 
matters in terms of a voice. So sure. to try to advocate for policies that are inclusive and, and humane and so on, that's very important. Um, but we tried to diversify, and actually 20% of our budget last year was filled by the private sector and individual give, givers. The public sector remains very focused on those few member states in particular. Um, and that is something we're trying to diversify it has been quite difficult. I think in numerical terms, the number of governments that are now providing to UNHCR has gone up year in and year out, but not to the scale that we need to try to meet a right. little bit of that gap. Right. Your website also had a per capita <laughs> contribution yeah. thing, and I saw Monaco was number one, which I'm sure adds up to like, you know, nothing. We, uh, we love Monaco. We love Monaco. Monaco's uh, Very rich country. Um, uh, but... I guess, you know, part of the complaint here is that should donors have, by giving money, should they have the ability to sway what you do? Well, the High Commissioner has a very particular mandate. Um, And the way that our organization is set up, he reports back to the General Assembly. And that provides a level of independence Um, Also, with regard to what he's been asked to do by the General Assembly, there has to be a way that we provide a level of support to refugees displaced in need wherever they may be. Um, And that kind of independence in terms of his mandate is very important to that. And I think we have a a very healthy governance group, but it's, it's over 100 member states. And you have a very strong voice in those governance discussions that we have from our host countries. And that, I think, is is quite different, perhaps, than some of my sister agencies. And I think that makes for a healthy organization. Because when we talk about donors, and I want to say this first and very, very forthright, we're not just talking about the donors that provide us resources. The hosts are also donors. You know, they've been doing this for decades. They're providing a global public good. They're keeping their borders open. They're doing the best they can, some of them with, with uh, meager means. And they need much more support than they get. I guess the, the sense of inequality is that the rich Western countries write the checks. And then the countries that end up being the hosts for refugees, you know, whose populations end up being bloated by refugee inflows. And then, you know, that ends up affecting their economies and the way their cities are populated and their supply of energy and food and uh, the ripple effects are immense, but those countries tend to be middle-income or poorer, and that leads to a sense of injustice. It's about three-quarters of refugees are hosted in uh, low- and middle-income That's a lot. It's a lot. It's one of the reasons, frankly, why the world came together in 2018 to establish this global compact on refugees. That was not just about refugees. That was very importantly also about hosts and about the way that we look at a response. You're not assisting just one part of the population. If you provide support, you're also providing it to the host communities too because you know how much they have um, shouldered in terms of of these additional guests and visitors and and refugees who've who've been in their communities. So it, it has been an, an approach that we've looked at very intentionally, where it's about self-reliance for the refugees. It's about finding other solutions, including solutions that may not be in those host countries. Um, resettlement is one. 
Some of the scholarship programs we've done with education are another, we call them complementary pathways, other ways to be able to support and relieve the burden. But it's also about the kind of support in those communities, like these fragile services that, that may not be ready to have double the number of students in their classrooms, like we saw uh, in the Middle East or even in Pakistan and, and in Iran, where they need much more additional support. So that, of course, then has a much bigger community of actors involved, including those host countries, but also civil society, refugees, uh, organizations, um, and others in terms of being able to provide protection aid and find solutions. It levels, I think, a little bit, again, um, this, the potential to see uh, an organization sway in one direction or another, because we really don't. And we, the way that we construct our, our programs are really bottom-up, and they're very much based on who the population is we're trying to serve, what the host communities may need, which actors are there, do we need to bring in other actors for reinforcements, or do we have the kind of local and community support that we require? And so the budget is built that way and up. That's a needs-based budget. Um, that's not necessarily what we're going to get. In fact, we don't right. receive that amount. But it's quite balanced region to region. Mm. So it's clear to me that one of the things that your organization needs is more money. Where does the private sector fit into this? And I keep hearing about things like leveraged finance and blended finance mm -hmm. when it comes to not just organizations such mm -hmm. as yours, but also the World Bank and, and other groups that are looking to solve other big issues. So how are you looking at that problem? So with the private sector, we've looked at it in, in a number of ways. And from a perspective of a humanitarian agency, there are a number of avenues that we're looking at on the, on the private sector side from, from some of the, the expertise elements, but also when we look at different ways of financing what we think needs to happen in a particular context. And I'll give you an example. Maybe we can link it back to climate. And for climate, there are a couple of components that we're looking at. Operational delivery. How do we do things differently? You've, you saw, for example, in the, the case of a, a million Rohingya going to Bangladesh, in those months right after, uh, in 2017, all you saw was uh, sparse hills, no trees, nothing. We quickly put into place something that we think now could be potentially scaled up on a refugee uh, environmental protection fund, which basically takes you know, tree planting with clean energy, like LPG, and then allowing carbon credits to be purchased, then sustaining this kind of support. So it's not something that you need to have additional capital come in for, for both the, the environmental purposes, but also for clean cooking and, and general support. But it's those sorts of innovative financing mechanisms that we think are possible. Um, we've done similar things with some of the development banks, including, for example, with the Islamic Development Bank using waqaf and non-waqaf sources. The capital that is necessary at the beginning that then becomes revolving that we can then use to be able to provide support in some of the operations in a way that you then aren't looking at um, a program injection needing an emergency appeal that's then been responded to be able to, to move. You've got already in a bank a guarantee 
that we can then access those funds because of the capital that then has has been built up. Um, we've we've used some of these sorts of techniques in terms of, of some of the financing that's required. It's still relatively modest, to be honest, but there there's potential there. Um, and one of the ways where we see the the relationship with the private sector building is in the collaboration that we've had with the International Financial Corporation. Um, and that we now have the kind of empirical evidence that we need that if you have investment in refugee areas and, and host communities, that you actually see the per capita of that community increasing, which has meant then more investment from those businesses and more investment from the banks in terms of being able to, to provide whatever service might be required in that area. So I think from the, the private sector side, some of them are, in, and we've, we've heard a lot about you know, tech and AI and that sort of thing. Uh, it uh, equally applies in the refugee context through things like predictive analytics. How do we know what's coming in terms of the weather patterns? How can we see areas where there might be potential for a spark of a local conflict that then spreads? Um, the overlay of, of some of those areas to know we've we've done this done some serious work in the Sahel and in the Horn of Africa to be able to predict the people's movements to be able to then preposition to be able to support more easily that would not have been possible without the private sector. Um, there are, there are a number of those uh, areas that and that's a growing part of the pie now. Yes. Well, so last year, of course, Ukraine was a big factor. I mean, we raised $1.2 billion from the private sector. Our strategy had been to exceed a billion by 2026. So this year, the, it's not looking so good uh, in terms of both the public support but also private wow. support. Because interest in Ukraine is waning? Yes, it's one of those, as we talked about earlier. You're, you have a lot of interest at the beginning in an emergency. If, if it's a natural disaster or um, a, a major event like this one has been, but you have to keep focus and you need to keep attention by individuals and but also businesses on why it matters to continue to engage and to support uh, this kind of action. You know, over the course of this conversation, I feel like you've mentioned maybe 10 countries that you've visited in the last <laughs> year. Um, I would not like to look at your sort of flight schedule calendar. That's probably very scary. But you see a lot of suffering. You see a lot of hard times for a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world. What gives you hope? The stories of people I talk to, and regardless of their suffering or their experience, they are always thinking about the future. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. I met this Ukrainian woman on the outskirts of Kiev uh, called Helena, um, and she was taking care of her husband, who w did not have the wherewithal to take care of himself. And we were, we were making some little fixes to her windows that had been uh, impacted from some of the shelling in the, the, uh, from the earlier parts of the war. You know what she was, she was telling me? She was most angry that her greenhouse had been shelled so she couldn't grow her hothouse tomatoes to be able to provide for the community because she was one of the community farmers. So how quickly could she get those hothouse tomatoes growing again to add to the apples where we went in her backyard and she picked some apples and gave them to us? I mean, regardless, she spent six weeks down in a cellar with her husband, and yet 
just a few weeks later, we're having this conversation about her growing her crops again. Or Pascaline, this Congolese refugee I met in Burundi last year, who had domestic violence, then um, sexual violence en route from Congo to uh, Burundi. She became a community leader. So she was mobilizing. She had a whole group of other community leaders to go and provide health information to other refugees in the camps. And she was making these connections with the the Burundi local community. These are the sorts of conversations that I just, you know, they they stay with me for a very, very long time. And I I haven't mentioned this um, in this conversation yet, but we have an opportunity actually in December, which is the Global Refugee Forum. And this is where we springboard forward on things like climate uh, adaptation, mitigation, uh, education, um, some of the solutions we've been talking about. And those sorts of things, what's at the center? It's refugee displaced and stateless voices. They're the ones that are driving our agenda, and they're the ones that we need to be listening to. And that's what gives me hope. Thank you for doing what you do. It's really, really important, and the world needs it. And... The work you do every day clearly makes such a huge difference. Kelly Clements, thank you for joining us. And that was Kelly Clements, the UN's Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees. Global Reboot is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. Next week, we're taking a break for Thanksgiving, but after that, you will hear from Monica Medina, the United States' first ever diplomat for biodiversity. She now serves as president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society, and she will join me to discuss how to preserve and protect our oceans, a really important topic. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Akrawal. I will see you next time. <laughs>